Afterthought on CKUW 95.9 FM. My name is Erica Weeb. And I'm Lynn Fernandez. We'd love to hear from you. Please email us at afterthought, that's one word, at ckuw.ca. It's Lynn Fernandez here. We are recording part two of my conversation with Paul Moist. It's March 2nd. And in our last session, we talked about the origins of the freedom, so-called freedom convoy and the various circumstances that have led to uh, allowing or, or um, precipitating such a movement in Canada. And one of the things also that we have talked about, Paul, which I'd like you to um, expand on, is your ideas around Steve Bannon, who is, of course, the architect of Trump, uh, the, the Trump 2016 victory. So could you tell me what um, your thoughts about, about Steve Bannon, please, and how he's contributed to this sort of malaise that we're living through right now? Okay, well, we're here, we're sitting here in early March 2022, and I first learned of Bannon in mid mid part of the last decade, you know, 2015, uh, 2014. Oh, you knew about him that early, eh? Breitbart News, just from The New Yorker and, you mm-hmm. know, things that I read. And then he really hits the scene as the second or third campaign manager for Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and... Trump wins in 2016, surprising to everybody. And uh, Bannon enters the White House, and they don't last a year together, uh, but he's still around, and he's very active in Europe uh, and in America and elsewhere. And a couple of things that he've said uh, kind of, for me, for me, define the problem of, uh, of our times. One thing he said in 2016 when he was explaining the Trump victory, the goal of politics is not to persuade, it's to motivate. So you actually have to really think about that and then you read a bit more about Bannon. What's he saying? What he's saying is, I just gotta get elected. The truth doesn't really matter. The truth, nothing matters. And it used to be, there used to be a convention in politics that once elected as Prime Minister of Canada, Prime Minister of Britain, President of the United States, Oh, I was elected by my, you know, my party supporters, but I'm governing for all. Uh, Bannon turns that on its head and says, no, uh, he's not worried if it's 46% and declining, the overall voter turnout. He's not worried about strong democratic states where you can't possibly win. He's worried about influencing the, in, the voters that are influenceable. Uh, and so he's really targeting, if only less than half of the voters are exercising their franchise. And he's only focused on half of them, maybe. He's less than 25% of the American uh, voter. Who's he focused on? White, middle America who are frustrated? Uh, And he succeeded in 2016 by pushing the buttons of who? Laid off workers in Ohio, which used to be a manufacturing stronghold. Michigan. Uh, Pennsylvania, all these the so-called Rust Belt states, 
And who are these frustrated workers? Well, another person who I read a fair bit about is, uh, is an author who now writes in The Atlantic, George Packer. He had a really precipitous book in 2013 called The Unwinding. And Packer writes about, he profiles people. It's kind of like just an expose on people. Who are these people? They're people that used to have a job that in today's terms paid, you know, 25 plus dollars an hour with benefits and a pension. And today they're working for $7 an hour at Disneyland. And the unwinding is how those people have been crunched down in employment terms and how the American um, social safety net, such as it is, has become much, much harsher. And I think without mentioning... Uh, Putnam and Bowling Alone in America, the disengagement of people in America, mm -hmm. he describes in The Unwinding uh, uh, a society that's kind of coming apart for a large segment of the population. Right. We're not talking hundreds of thousands. We're talking about millions of workers in a country where the gap is getting wider. There is more gated communities. There are more millionaires. There are more billionaires. Uh, billionaires. Yeah. Uh, we now have people, uh, you know, in a race to space for for tourism in space. For goodness sakes. And, and these these men have more money than a lot of countries do, right? Yes. I mean, the, the the wealth in is 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 obscene. The amount of money they have. So Packer uh, writes about what became fertile ground for Bannon. The unwinding is about people being stripped of all dignity, stripped of all hope. You can strip people temporarily of dignity by, you know, forcing unemployment on them, and you know, life throws things at many people in for many spaces. Uh, Packer argues you strip away their hope that anything can ever be better, mm -hmm. and it goes to your question: Why did people turn in a direction of collectivity? Even in a failing situation in the 1919 general strike, their belief in those leaders and in the principles of trade unionism mm -hmm. didn't erode. They elected half their leaders to public office at federal, provincial, and civic level over and over mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. They didn't win their strike. They did not win free collective bargaining rights. But they believed in the vision. Uh, and a conservative jurist, Hugh Robson, wrote about that vision. Why can't we have a society that taxes, that distributes services to people, like Medicare? So what Packer is saying to me is the vision's over. There's abject misery and poverty in America, and people have lost hope. And, and that's, that's, those are the people who are in that convoy, a lot of them. Yes. A lot of them. And Bannon, I think, understands Packer's message better than most people. Again, here's what he said. The goal of politics is not to persuade, it's to motivate. Mm -hmm. And so we have Bannon playing that. And I, in a previous conversation with you, Lynn, I talked about it reinforces people's legitimate misery by pushing their buttons and enraging them against all elites. And uh, Bannon doesn't care. He will call an elite on the left a trade union boss or an elite on the right corporate, uh, tech, uh, the techno uh, stratosphere of America, the uh, mm -hmm. Silicon Valley. Oh, well, for Bannon and Trump, they hate those folks. Mm -hmm. Absolutely hate them. Uh, one of them shut Trump down by taking him off uh, social media. They say whether you're on the left or the right, whether you're pro-abortion pro, pro 
uh, pro-life, uh, anti-abortion, or whether you're a worker who lost uh, a job due to a free trade agreement, you're being screwed. And, and he's able to bring these And he together. brings them together because mm -hmm. they're... And, and so, you know, uh, I, I go from Bannon just for a moment to, to Mandela. You know, here's a guy that spends most of his adult life in jail, and when he's freed, he... Uh, he just speaks and he doesn't go after his uh, the perpetrators of apartheid directly. He, he denounces uh, bloodshed as mm -hmm. a solution. And one of his more poignant uh, comments is, it's all, the only power we have is through education. And I think they understood that in 1918 and 1919 in Winnipeg. There was a daily newspaper, uh, Essel Jones, in a previous interview you did, referred to it. Uh, the Worker's Voice, uh, it was uh, producing 20,000 copies per issue. Uh, Winnipeg was a city of 175,000 people in 1919, and if there's you know three or four or five people to a family, there was only 40,000 dwellings. Over half the dwellings in Winnipeg were getting a source of information. Uh, they didn't have 2,000 channels to choose from. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have social media. They didn't have social <laughs> media, but they had uh, a worker's perspective on many things. The Treaty of Versailles uh, probably caused World War II, uh, history tells us. Workers were reading about these things and talking about them. And so Mandela says this, was, this is a source of power for workers, information. Mm -hmm. uh, what uh, Bannon has figured out is that the information vacuum that exists in today's world is one to be exploited. I can motivate rage. I can motivate people to call themselves truckers and go and lead parades and uh, and uh, you know hijack legitimate worker interests. Uh, and uh, commentators kept saying over and over again, 90% of long-haul truckers in Canada and the United States, because of rules to keep working, are vaccinated. They're vaccinated. Whether they wanted to get vaccinated or not, they did. And they worked throughout the three-week siege of, of Ottawa. But it was these other Bannon-like interests that pounced on them. The question will be, can they can their pouncing, they're facing charges now and you know they've they'll they'll live to emerge again, but can the, the Maxine Bernier, can the populist right uh, neo-fascist right in Canada get a foothold like it does in America. Yeah, and, and I would argue there are, there are some fundamental differences between the countries. Uh, I have had, uh, throughout my life, problems with the social democratic project in Canada. I, I, I've had my own grievances with it. I am a lifelong, uh, my whole adult life, a New Democrat, and believe that the third option in Canada, the social democratic option, has done good for our country, warts and all. Go to the United States. You have a Democratic or a Republican option. In many respects, two sides of the same coin. It's kind of trite today to talk about how they there's no bipartisan, they're so different from each other. They're not that different from each other on major policy issues when it comes to trade issues and mm -hmm. that. Forget about the yelling and the screaming of Trump and the you know, uh, stacking the Supreme Court and wanting to overturn Roe v. Wade. These are terrible things. But on major economic issues, 
another uh, author who I've read who writes starkly for me, Jefferson Cowie, he's from New York, and uh, he wrote recently that there hasn't been a, uh, uh, he's at Cornell University, there hasn't been, his book is called The Great Exception, 2016. So it's pre-COVID, it's, it's pre-Trump actually. He says that uh, there hasn't been a major uh, worker improvement legislatively since the Wagner Act, since the 1930s, and that workers in America have been in a retrenchment just to try to hang on to what they've had mm-hmm. for over seven or eight decades. Remind, remind listeners how unionism, union density, has declined in the United States. Where, where, where are we today with unionism? In the 1950s, at a high water mark, we had in Canada and the United States about 35% of the workforce organized. Some That's provi- public and private sector. Public and private. Mm-hmm. And some provinces in Canada, you know, Newfoundland got near 50% at mm-hmm. one point in time. Uh, Quebec was uh, hovering in the 40s, but Canada as a nation at par with the uh, United States. Uh, today, uh, Canada still sits at around 32 or 33%. Our private sector density is declining, but mm-hmm. it's still 15 or 16% of the workforce. Uh, it was more. It's, it's less now. In the United States, uh, uh, the private sector density is under 6%. And it was at par with Canada's, mm-hmm. which was more than 15 or 16% in the 50s. Right. And the overall density, the entire working population of the United States, public and private sector, about 12% of the total workforce and falling is unionized. And, and I would argue that there's a correlation between what's happening in terms of the decline of all kinds of things in North America. I would argue there's a correlation with the decline in the union movement. Yes. And... And maybe one of the things that we can be optimistic about in terms of whether we're going to deteriorate as much in Canada as things have in the U.S. is the fact that we do have a stronger union movement here than we do in, in the U.S. I, I mean, I, I don't know. There's, there's other things that are better here than in the, in the U.S., in, in including our, our wages yeah. have not declined as much, et cetera, et cetera. So do you see hope in, 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 those, uh, in, in, in those statistics? I listened very carefully when uh, uh, noted labor activist and an academic, Jane McAlevey, was here in Winnipeg in 2019 uh, as a guest at a conference that was uh, studying the events of 1919 mm-hmm. in Winnipeg. And, you know, she, uh, she had a stark message for the trade union movement that the forces all around us are serious. Globalization is serious right-to-work states which empower employers to resist union drives. That's serious. Uh, Unlimited amounts of money in their political system has worked against workers. That's really serious stuff. All these externalities are extremely serious. Just as serious for her is, are we an inward-looking trade union movement? She's talking about the states, or not. Mm -hmm. And she could have been talking about Canada, as far as I was concerned. Uh, what I think she was saying is we got many uh, challenges to to meet. Uh, one of the greatest is internal. What kind of trade union movement do we want? And I, I feel lucky that real early on in my career, I met uh, progressives working in the inner city, uh, people like Tom Sims and, uh, and various other folks. 
And uh, I was asked as president of the Labor Council in the early 80s, it was a volunteer job. Today it's a permanent job. I never wanted to be a permanent president of the Labor Council. It was a volunteer job, and I did it for a couple of years. And I was asked to serve on a community inquiry. And should we have a third core area initiative? And we had a board set up. Uh, the head of it was a guy from the University of Winnipeg named Tom Carter. Tom Sims was our secretary to our commission. And we had, I think, 25 or 30 public meetings in the inner city about the mm -hmm. state of the... At Rossbrook House, if my memory yes, serves. Yes, many of them. Mm -hmm. And so we are having a public hearings so that we could, as, as a commission, kind of an official-sounding thing, we were just inner-city folks. I was the only person there from Labour. And we were to report outwards. And it, our report got a fair amount of uh, public attention. Could we get the attention of the federal government, the provincial government, and City Hall to have a third core area initiative? Mm -hmm. uh, of course, infrastructure, water system, streets, these are important things, uh, treatment plants. But so too is the social fabric of the city. The, we we're talking, again, 40 years ago about the declining housing stock in Winnipeg. It's worse today. It's, it's way, way worse. Mm -hmm. We were talking about the social issues of poverty and homelessness in Winnipeg 40 years ago. <laughs> I don't have the stats in front of me. It's worse today. It's worse today. So I felt really lucky uh, in hindsight to have been exposed to inner city activists and people who had just as or maybe a more progressive vision than I had for the world. And that, that trade union, uh, what's the right word? Trade union activism belongs on the shop floor, belongs at the bargaining table, belongs in the political sphere, and it bloody well belongs in the, community. in the community. And I think that's what McAlevey is saying, that if we're to truly be a... I'll just try to speak for labor. I'm retired. I speak for nobody anymore. But uh, uh, as a trade union lifelong um, person in the trade union movement, if the trade union movement's ever to succeed, it cannot be inward-looking. Uh, I spoke to a group of education workers recently saying, do you know how much society values a public education system? And it didn't fall out of the sky to us. We have a comprehensive public education system. What is it? Every child will be welcomed into a school environment. You don't pay any fees at the door. It's paid for by the state. Most countries in the world, there's about 200 countries in the world, can't say that. We take it for granted. I went through it. You went through it. My children went through it. It was very good to them. Was it perfect? No. But it's trusted and it's a symbol of the strength of our democracy. The strength of our democracy to rejuvenate the lives of workers and to push back against the Steve Bannons or the so-called leaders of the Truckers' Convoy uh, will be defined by our willingness to ask ourselves the tough questions and to engage with our membership, not to demand they pay their dues every two weeks, which, you know, of course, they, they, they need to pay their dues. Uh, they benefit from having a trade union. But do we have their permission to use some of those dues beyond just the bargaining table, organizing, and say taking agreements mm -hmm. to arbitration. 
Is it a good use of time for Paul Moist as a young trade union leader working for QP to use some of QP's time, they're paying me, to attend two or three dozen community meetings in the belly of the beast, the inner city of Winnipeg? I answer that question, yes. But what's what happening today? Are they doing it today? This, this is the tough question. Yeah, and I, I will be... Uh, less if if i'm fluent in speech i'll be less fluent right now uh, for two reasons one i don't get up in the morning ever wanting to criticize the movement that i believe profoundly in that, mm -hmm. that provided me with a wonderful working life my whole life and i believe implicitly in the trade union movement um, but the hard truth you know havel said vaslav havel said uh, a couple of things that really fascinate me he was a fascinating man uh, as the Berlin Wall fell, the Iron Curtain fell, he said, uh, we live in the postmodern world where anything is possible, anything, and nothing is certain. Wow. He also said, uh, speak hard truths and write your own speeches. Mm -hmm. And I did that throughout my career. So the speech here in answer to your question is, no, the trade union movement is not looking outwards to the degree that I believe it should. And it, and it used to. And it used to. And I and I believe people are working hard and doing the best job they can for the membership. Uh, I also think people, uh, the general working class, the general public, and yes, trade union leadership, are imprisoned by their own ignorance of our history, mm -hmm. of the need for us to communicate with one another that we don't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. Uh, is it a good use of time as a trade unionist? Uh, I was always busy working as a trade unionist, very busy, uh, real busy. Many hours uh, working for the members, many hours volunteering for things, knocking on doors for the political party I choose to belong to. And I'm not whining, I'm a very supportive spouse, and, and I was very, very busy. Was it a good use of my time to knock on doors in elections and, you know, maybe that candidate didn't win? Uh, or maybe they did win and they ended up being a lousy representative. That happens. I have never thought it's a waste of time to stand on a doorstep. I've, uh, we're on Aubrey Street in Wolseley right now uh, on March the 2nd, 2022. I've knocked on doors on this street. I've had some wonderful conversations. I've had some forgettable conversations. But uh, it's never a bad thing to engage with people on what? What kind of city hall do you want to have? Mm -hmm. What should the, prov the provincial government's uh, priorities be? Right now, I would say, is it true there's over 100,000 surgeries backlog? That means people are suffering. Manitobans of all walks of life are suffering because we can't fix their knees and their joints and their hearts and their, their, you know, I think we're still doing, thank God, cancer treatments. But, you know, the system's falling apart. Yes, it is. By neglect. And so on a doorstep... I, I wish there was an election today, I, and it's cold outside. So what? I never thought that was a waste of my time. I actually don't think uh, trade union leaders hold the hearts and minds, never mind of the rank-and-file members, of the trade union activists. Of the trade union activists. So, and, and I, I say that, I say that, and I, I, I'm distressed saying that. Uh, so, you know, why do I do a thing like a Brookside tour? I hope to motivate people to come mm -hmm. and at least in two hours learn something about our history that is very relevant to today. And uh, there are so many contemporary uh, 
lessons to be learned from the issues you raised with Essel Jones and the issues you've raised with me that you know, we've only scratched the surface and yes. we're probably at the end. Erica, Not you have a question. I, I'm, I'm just the tech here today, but I do have a question listening to Paul. And do you think that, <clears throat> you know, as a result of that disconnect from the union leadership and the general public, there, there's another institution that the general public is losing faith in or thinks it's just an elite kind of distant force that is not helpful and in fact is privileged and like not connected to my needs. Yeah, the the trade union movement as a whole does very little to uh, sell itself or to, you know, not, not in an arrogant way, but polling tells us that even conservative voting uh, adults would like their kids to get a union job. Now, these same folks uh, would call union leaders union bosses and elites and... Uh, union thugs. You know, union thugs <laughs> yeah. and things like that. Uh, uh, and, you know, when, when uh, the law was changed in most jurisdictions, including Manitoba, to limit union and corporate donations, I was totally in favor of it. Why? The last year we have stats for in Manitoba... Uh, for every dollar a union donated to its uh, political activism, uh, there was $30 coming from businesses and corporations. The real strength of the trade union movement is not a checkbook. It's the, uh, it's the ability to communicate with large amounts of its A, its membership, mm-hmm. and B, uh, uh, to create a stronger democracy by an engaged membership. And uh, are you a leader who's inclined to do that? And I I once sat in a meeting as a national union leader in Toronto where we were going to, through the Canadian Labour Congress, tax ourselves, uh, an increase in taxes, a substantial one on a one-time basis, to work on a labour image campaign and our campaign to expand Canada Pension. Because most workers listening to this broadcast, if they don't have a union, don't have a pension at work. And 55 unions were present all the presidents were present and other executive members, a crowd of about 300, and we passed the motion, yes, we would tax ourselves to work on our image and to fight for Canada Pension Plan, expan- plan expansion. And the second thing we adopted was every single union agreed with this statement. There's a widening space between our elected leadership and our membership, and it's unhealthy and it's worrisome. We need to narrow the gap. And the goal was going to be 3.5 million, 3.5 million union members belong to the CLC, 3.5 million one-on-one conversations. About what? Whatever. Leader talking to person, making time for each other, not on social media. And that uh, that initiative... you know, got kind of got hijacked by a, a CLC convention, which became focused only on leadership. I actually think most Canadian workers don't care who their leader is. They want performance and they want uh, results. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we as a labor movement couldn't uh, uh, abandon internal divisions to focus on that. So we did the $8 million assessment on ourselves. We did succeed in uh, an expansion of CPP, the first since 1966. We did work on our image through advertising a little bit. uh, And we failed, in my view, collectively, all of us, CUPE included, to narrow the gap. 
between uh, the leadership and the membership. And that question is the question that Jane McAlevey put on the table when mm -hmm. she spoke to us in 2019. Her latest book puts that question on the table. Anyone who's thinking clearly has that question on the table, not just about union leaders and union members, about political uh, leaders and society as a whole. Yes. Uh, uh, the most common complaint I hear from New Democrats is, uh, and I'm sure it's the same in other parties, the only time I hear from the party is when they want a donation. And, uh, you know, they have to raise money, and I get that. But in 2022, are we capable of finding ways to meaningfully engage with people? When I knock on doors in elections, a lot of trade union leaders, younger ones, are worried, you know, oh, somebody might slam the door in my face, or they might not be nice. Most Canadians are pretty nice at the doorstep, even when they're not voting for you. I have never ever ever had anything but i actually come home uh, many nights i don't want to knock on doors i'm tired i don't feel like going out but it's a meaningful exchange with people i run into people all over the place i met you one time you knocked on my door we talked about health care you you told me uh, i didn't agree with you but i really you got me thinking you got me thinking and yeah. and i think it's one brick at a time you know i think it's just one conversation at a time i think you have to not pursue a career in the trade union movement so you can you know make a good wage and you know retire it's a lifelong uh, commitment it is worth our while to go to the legislature to support the people of Ukraine, even though we don't have any direct dealing with it. And I think if we prepare and attend interviews like this, if we support shows like this, uh, monetarily and otherwise, and I, I plan to make a donation to the radio station, which I haven't done for a while, and I, and I will, I just think we have to practice what we preach, and there is a way to get at the convoy, the so-called convoy mm -hmm. leaders. It's by educating all the workers who probably deep down know what a snake oil salesman is when they see one. Right. So, and that's going to get back to your theme on education. I think education is that is that the is that the it's the kernel of the issue. Well, I think we're out of time. I I feel like I could go another hour, but I think we have mm -hmm. to stop. Thank you very much for your insights, for your thoughts, for your wisdom and your time. And it's been a while since we've seen each other. It's been great to see you. I feel like spring is coming and maybe this COVID thing is over and, and maybe we can start yeah, Well, it's been, a pleasure. it's been a pleasure to be here and our next meeting should be at the Yellow Dog. Uh, Absolutely. Over a beer. Over a beer. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Thank you both.